So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today we are really excited to be joined by Getty Minas Lesutis. Um, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yes. yes. Oh, good. All right. Um, who is the Marie Curie Fellow in the Department of Geography, Urban Planning and International Development Studies at the University of Amsterdam. And he's written a powerful book called The Politics of Precarity, Spaces of Extractivism, Violence and Suffering. We're going to talk about that book today. But anyway, welcome to the show, Getty Minas. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me at the show. It's a pleasure. All right. So before we get into the details of your book and your research, I want to talk to you about the problems that you have with the narratives of progress, development, and and what you call the spectacle of positivity. In the European context and American context or Western world in general, I think when I think about my own life growing up before I started studying, I I was kind of fed this narrative that if you work hard enough, if you do the right things that you're supposed to do, you can achieve, achieve A, B and C resulting in a good prosperous life. And I think that narrative actually excludes a lot of dynamics that are fundamentally violent, exclusionary, damaging, not only to people in the global south, but also to uh, us in, in, in the, in the so-called Western world, which I think results in, I mean, in different forms of anxiety, different forms of even neurosis, when we realize that this dream that we are supposed to have and achieve and work for is actually unachievable to most of us because this narrative of progress and or modernity or development, whatever you want to call it, is just an illusion that is kind of used to justify a fundamentally exploitative mode of economic development that we live under, which is capitalism. And of course, many people wrote uh, better books than my own explaining these dynamics, but I wanted to contribute <laughs> to that conversation because I think it's fundamentally a conversation that we need to keep having in different ways and forms. Okay. I mean, well, I, I teach international political economy in, in high school, and I use the term development a lot, and I do sometimes feel uncomfortable with using the term. So I wonder what are, what are some better terms? Better terms than development. Yeah, like if development's the wrong term because it does imply some sort of progress is being made. I do want to talk to you about that, about Mm -hmm. whether or not progress is actually being made. But do you have terms or have you seen terms that you prefer? Well, I don't really have a preferred terms. I think as a critical social scientist, I like to deconstruct the terms that we are accustomed to. Mm -hmm. And I think development in itself, if... I mean, as a concept, it has been very powerful, and I think it still is very powerful. And we can use that concept, but critically, first of all, starting to deconstruct it, what kind of symbolic semiotic structures it kind of implies the the use of this term. And I mean, I think we can talk about that, that certainly there are forms of development that cannot be denied. Uh, in terms of technological advancement or even, you know, the conversations that people are having now in different spaces for different reasons. I think that is undeniable. Uh, But I guess when I talk about development, for me, because, well, I I come from kind of critical theory, politics background, and I have also taught development studies, critical development studies, I think their development is 
often equated to modernity and progress as a form of linear development that uh, economic growth and prosperity is kind of guaranteed that it's even kind of tautological in the sense that we accept that everything will keep getting better in one way or another. And for me, it's interesting to deconstruct that, that it's not always the case because it might get better for a certain class of people in certain moments in time, but for others, it might not, as I guess most political economists will ask these questions. Okay, yeah, so I want to talk to you about the big question of whether or not things are in fact getting better because, you know, there's this pretty famous website called Our World in Data, and on the website, there's lots and lots of data which shows that people are getting wealthier all across the world, they're living longer lives. Famously, there's this Branko Milanovic chart which shows the, the sort of an elephant graph where the, the very poor in the world and the global middle class have gotten much, much wealthier in the last 40 years, as, as have the very rich. Um, how would a critical developmental economist respond to that? I think it's very interesting that we are thinking about this question in the context of very recent events in the US. Uh, and here I'm referring to what happened yesterday, the repeal of the right to abortion. On, on one level, it, it, these things might not be, might appear not to be directly related, but I think they are in a sense that it shows how in the midst of what appears to be economic prosperity and growth, we can still have a pushback from very conservative sectors of society that actually want to limit fundamental freedoms of certain groups of people. So I think my answer would be that, well, first of all, I have to say that I'm not an economist and I do not have training in yeah. economics or econometry in mm -hmm. any sense. But for me, what is important is to kind of not accept the economic factors and statistics and data as the sole indication of progress and economic development or social and political development, that we have to think what happens when things are changing in, in some ways for, for better, how are those forms of wealth appropriated for whom and for what purposes and who gets left behind and excluded and in what ways both explicitly violent or in ways that are disguised and are not seen as violent, but might still result in extreme forms of precarity to people who are exposed to these disguised forms of violence. So for me, it's important to ask mm -hmm. how the wealth that is created, how is it distributed and with what political, social and economic effects? Uh, so I guess that would be my answer. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. not denying that there's a, progress in lots of sectors of society. But yeah, for me, that's just the kind of the start of the question or the start of the conversation, uh, not yeah. the end in any sense or not the conclusion. Thank you. So I'd like to get into your book now, um, The Politics of Precarity. And I, I guess the best place, place to start would be in, in 2013 with your first visit to Mozambique. So maybe talk about that visit and what your, what your work was um, early on and how it developed. I visited Mozambique as a master's student. I was doing research for my master's dissertation. And at the time I was interested in environmental politics. I was interested in uh, production of uh, environmentally sustainable biodiesel that uh, 
at the time, Mozambique as a country was really interested in, and there was a lot of international investment in that sector. Uh, but during that time, when I was there for a couple of months, I realized that there was another natural resource boom that was much more structurally kind of life-changing for a lot of people, and it was the exploitation of coal in central uh, province uh, of, uh, called Tet in Mozambique. Because at the time when I was there, there were a lot of investors and people coming to work as engineers, as all sorts of things in the mining industry. And then I couldn't help but notice that development. And what was interesting to me in that context, what was happening on the ground in those rural areas where coal was being extracted or was going to be extracted in the future. And there was one very specific moment when I met two Brazilian engineers by complete accident. And they told me the story as an anecdote they thought it was amusing, an amusing anecdote. They told me a story about what they called local peasants blocking a railway that was transporting coal. And they told that story showing how people are resistant to development, that they don't know what is good for them, that they just want to be kind of left to their own devices, stuck in, in their traditions, and they don't want to accept economic development and modernity. And even as a master student I, student, I knew that that was a very simplistic way of understanding very complex social and political realities in Mozambique. And that's what I wanted to investigate in my subsequent PhD research, like, like this kind of dichotomy. What happens on the ground when we are presented with these modes of development that are promoted by both the national government and national investors or even in international financial institutions like the World Bank? And what actually happens on the ground uh, to people who are first displaced and then resettled uh, by these investors who are also promised a better life, uh, a better tomorrow. And I wanted to investigate that. What actually happens on the ground? How do people live with these processes that they have no way of influencing that they kind of have to accept in some form? Uh, in other words, this is like a very Marxian question. How do people make their lives in the conditions of not their own choosing, not their own making? So that's what, what I wanted to explore in the book. You mentioned that the, the, the national government is working hand in hand with international investors and the World Bank. So there's, there's coordination here. What, what actually happens to people when they're relocated? Does the national government come in with with police and bulldozers and basically say, look, this is like really valuable land and you've got to move to this other place and we've got a, a new village for you? I mean, the, the picture is very complex and it kind of relates to the complexity of the state and state apparatus in Mozambique that the central government does not necessarily start with violent forms of dispossession. First, it uses the kind of the state apparatus that Trickles, trickles, trickles down from Maputo to rural localities that still have um, village leaders who have some sort of party affiliation to uh, Frelimo party, for example, which is uh, the main political party in Mozambique. And then they use those local political structures to what they call sensitize, inform people about changes that are going to take place. Um, and there they work closely with, uh, or at least in, in the context of my research, they work very closely with Valley, a Brazilian mining company that also had a corporate social responsibility team uh, who if, if, 
that evaluated the kind of the local social, economic, and environmental context, uh, trying to understand the conditions that, that people had and how those conditions could be replicated in another context with the, res with the resettlement program. So there you see like these kind of different actors, the, the central government using the local political structures in combination with investors themselves trying to kind of promote this idea that resettlement is a, a form of development that it can give people uh, a better life. That what that's what happened in the context of, uh, uh, in the village that where I work, that people were promised that they will be given better infrastructures, better housing, that they will be given access to employment in the mining company, that they will also be educated and trained on how to undertake small scale business activities. So all these structures kind of were used to convince people. And of course, not everybody was convinced and people who did refuse or hesitate to leave, they were asked to do so with the presence of police forces. So when those kind of uh, soft methods of uh, persuasion fail, of course, the more direct forms of violence can, uh, can happen. And when most promises did not come true in the village that was built for the displaced population, population, this population revolted and they create, as I mentioned already, they blocked the railway as a form of protest against what was happening to them. And at that time, uh, rapid uh, intervention forces were sent in and the pr protesters were met with violence. And the protest was dispersed that way. And I think around 15 people were uh, arrested and detained illegally for several days before they were re released again. So here you see how direct forms of violence do come into play when there's uh, organized social resistance. Mm -hmm. Well, how did the resettlement create precarity? And how, in general, does this type of, this form of, you know, quote-unquote development, this development model, this extractivist model, create precarity for people, say, in Mozambique? Yeah, well, I'm not the first one to make these conclusions, uh, although I guess I do it in a slightly different language, but this, these conversations about whether people can successfully adapt after displacement or relocation, um, they've been around for, well, more than several decades now, and all the researchers are showing that it's actually almost impossible to create or recreate the conditions that people had. And that happens due to a number of reasons. I mean, at the most, if we think about these processes anthropologically, it's very difficult to take one village and we settled it, it somewhere else because then people lose direct access to their you know, local cosmology. So, and the ways of being in the world. So for example, they lose access to their uh, burial, si bur burial sites or sites where they have connections with their ancestors. The connection to land is also very Im important. And uh, it's not just the case, you know, that I think the Western forms of development see land as a, as a commodity that can be exchanged and interchanged with, well, either money or another plot of land in, in local cosmologies in Mozambique, for example, people who rely on land do not understand it as such. It's part of their 
lives, it's part of their family histories, it's part of their culture. So this kind of relationship does not translate in the same way we might understand it. When we think about, well, my book and other cases, is it's essentially dispossession that people are taken away from their livelihoods and they are not necessarily given alternatives. Uh, and that's what happened in Katemi, that people who were reliant on land, they were semi-subsistence farmers, they were given land after they were resettled, but the land was not fertile and thus it was not productive. So people mm -hmm. could not sustain themselves on an everyday basis. And uh, what I want to highlight that people that the people that I worked with themselves, they do not see extractivism as a kind of violence in itself. For them, the problem starts that they are not included in these forms of development. Right. They would actually, and this is, I think, a very interesting tension that we have to think about as academics, that to them, as long as they are given employment, whether it's more precarious employment or whether it's, you know, working mines themselves or working in the offices doing, I don't know, all sorts of duties from cleaning to more administrative work, as long as they are given those forms of uh, inclusion, most people would be happy with that because regular employment in a mining company is a more stable livelihood than having to rely on two hectares of land mm -hmm. and in predictable weather patterns. So for so the extractivism is not necessarily seen as a form of evil. It's the exclusion, very deliberate exclusion from these processes that is, is the main problem to, to the people that I was working with. And they, and it's very understandable because living in highly unstable, precarious contexts, people do not necessarily have time and energy to think about sustainability and what is going to happen in the long term when the, the most immediate needs of social reproduction and actually being able to sustain yourself and your family are much more pressing. And people make these choices because they are, well, rational, logical actors. So for me, I reflect on this dynamic in the book that kind of the normative ideas that we have about mining, extractivism, coal, energy, they take very different meaning in these contexts where, well, they're being kind of materially produced and reproduced, if that makes sense. No, it does. So it seems, if I could just rephrase it, it, it seems like what you're saying is you've got two problems. One problem is, is extractivism and, you know, and basically you're exploiting natural resources and particularly really dirty ones like coal. Mm -hmm. um, but for people who are actually working in in the business if you could get a job as a miner you know that's not so bad the problem is that the wealth is not being all this new wealth is not being redistributed at all is that right yes essentially that yes because okay and uh, yeah and uh, now i i remember very vivid examples of these dynamics how people who know that well the mining is taking place but themselves are not working there they're using these references how other people are getting rich fat and wealthy uh, at their expense that they themselves are not getting anything and uh, uh, yeah are left to their own devices yes yeah, so you put it you summarize it much better than i have no so no i don't think I, I i think you were very clear i guess i, I, mean, I have a bunch of questions but i guess my first one is is you mentioned Frelimo, which I don't know much about, but the little that I do know is that they were a, sort of a, they were 
a resistance army to Portuguese colonialism. Uh, they become a party. The Marxist mm -hmm. Marxist Leninist party. How do they become the ruling party that that exploits and extracts so much from from the people of the country? Yes, that's a great question, and I think you kind of uh, described what Perlimo is very well. Uh, that it was a nationalist movement fighting for the self-determination and independence of Mozambique from Portuguese colonial rule. And once they succeeded, uh, there was a, a civil war because there was a, they emerged another movement supported by South Africa, uh, Renamo, that was kind of um, opposing a lot of ideas that uh, Ferrimo had. But they, after the peace agreement in the early 90s, if I remember correctly, they did emerge as a ruling party and they kind of had no choice uh, because the, the economic policies that they tried to implement under their interpretation of Marxism, they failed due to, well, there, there are a lot of reasons to why they failed uh, and I don't know how much time we have to discuss. Well, we, we, we've got some time if you want to. Yeah. What what happened? Because I'm really interested in this post-colonial moment. I guess so. I guess the question in short is why they transformed into this into this party, which, which makes out pretty well, even when most of the people aren't doing all that great. Hmm. So, I mean, when the economic policies were not successful because, A, the state itself was not able to kind of oversee them and did not have administrative capacity, B, they did not have enough financial resources to do it, like, for example, with uh, collectivization of land and creation of state farms, they relied uh, a lot on the idea that people themselves will contribute to, 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 to those economic projects. And they particularly relied on kind of middle peasants that had technology and know-how how to work land. But in, in the post-colonial context, there was actually a lot of resistance from this, this rural class because to them, giving up their means of production was a class suicide, mm -hmm. giving it up to the, to the state. Uh, so there was kind of this uh, social resistance to that. Uh, there was also another, other anthropologists explain how Frelimo's ideas of a kind of a new nation and a new man based on their inter interpretation of socialism and Marxism was too kind of interventionist in a social context that people, some factions of society felt that they were traditional forms of leadership, traditional forms of beliefs were being attacked and undermined too drastically. And that's why in some parts of Mozambique, the Renamo movement that opposed Frelimo was supported. Uh, and then of course you had civil war that lasted more than a decade that weakened the state apparatus and then destroyed a lot of fundamental physical and social structures in the society. And in that context, with the massive, massive devastation that the civil war caused, uh, the state run by Ferlimo, by fragile Ferlimo, had no choice but to turn to, well, the World Bank and an international monetary fund. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That, of course, as we all know, had <laughs> projects of their own and promoted, well, structural adjustment reforms that opened the economy to international market that at the time when it was not ready to compete in any fair sense, it was ready to be, well, again, kind of exploited and uh, intervened by international, well, investors and uh, 
uh, yeah. So, so that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And that's how Okada Mozambique had to, given the lack of funding from the former Soviet bloc, it did have to make choices to, to well, to given what was available. And that's how it shifted first to structural adjustment and then gradual neoliberalization or privatization of public, uh, public industries and public sectors. And uh, yeah, this very interesting research that was done on those dynamics in the context of Mozambique. I just, at this moment in time, I can't <laughs> tell you the exact references, but mm -hmm. they, they are in the book, in the second chapter of the book, I discuss that quite extensively, that this kind of shift to extreme forms of precarization did not happen overnight, but it was a, kind of an effect of, well, starting with the, uh, civil war, then structural adjustment reforms, then liberalization of the economy, privatization, and then kind of the final, well, the current stage of uh, neoliberal capitalism. And now, well, of course, state capitalism and China's role in Mozambique is also important, but I do not discuss that in the book. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, uh, I needed a few minutes, but I could answer the question that you asked. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, so one of the questions I have is, again, because you were there in this village, um, for, for four months doing field work, is that right? Yes, four months in total, yeah. So what do people, practically speaking, what do people do if the, if the farmland, the new farmland that they have isn't fertile? What do they do? What does precarity look like? How do uh, people make it? Yeah, I mean, there are different forms of coping. Uh, younger men, for example, are returning to the areas from which they had been dispossessed. And they are, well, legally trespassing the mine. And they are still working the land that is not currently being excavated for coal. There's those kind of strategies. Other people are leaving resettlement on more permanent basis. And they find plots of land in other parts of the province of Tet. And they construct a little house of their own. And they stay there for most of the time because on that piece of land, they are able to produce vegetables, vegetables. Uh, and food that they need for their own consumption and with very little surplus that they might have, then they sell it in local markets uh, closer to urban areas in the province. And then with that money, they might buy items that they themselves cannot produce. And that's how they sustain themselves. Uh, but this is not how they lived before. Before they lived in much closer proximity to urban area, uh, this town called Mortiz, and then a bigger town called Tet. And there they were able to work informally in, in different sectors of the economy, whether construction, domestic work, or sell some of the farm pro produce. So there's like a very stark contrast between before the resettlement and after resettlement. And uh, in the resettlement site itself, people, well, you know, people can be very industrious and they can think of the ways how to make ends meet. Uh, one interesting dynamic about this new village is that it has a very good schooling facilities and uh, a lot of people outside of that area send their kids to that school. So then uh, the resettled people themselves, they rent their houses to these kids that come to the school and then they construct their little houses somewhere else and that's how they mm. make very little money but still are able to sustain themselves but abandonment of the resettlement site is very prominent uh, 
when once I realized that I I did a survey of the whole village going from a house to house trying to understand how many people had left on permanent basis and it's at the time in 2016-17 it was 35% of the housing wow. and went were no longer uh, occupied in any way so you can see how this kind of resettlement as a form of development is actually not that in any sense because people are choosing to live in more remote distant areas of the province without uh, access to infrastructures because they themselves cannot su sustain themselves in the resettlement side wow i mean you spoke before about I mean, you spoke before about this meeting you had um in a bar with the two brazilian like they were from vale i guess yes. um two brazilian extractivists i don't know workers who are extracting uh, coal and you, you spoke about this protest where people block the railroads or this organized protest where people block the railroads and i'm wondering in your time in the resettlement village if you found other forms of resistance and also if you heard people at all speaking about wanting to go back to or develop a new model that was less precarious, a new economic model or a new way of living that was less precarious? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, absolutely. So two questions here. Um, yeah, the first one, the forms of resistance, people use the existing legal structures to challenge the state and the investor. So, for example, in, in Kateme, there's a community committee that represents uh, community interests, and they have written various petitions about impacts of the resettlement on the community, and they documented different forms of, uh, well, of damage that has been done to the, the, the population of Kateme. So they do do that, and they do use kind of the existing ways of engaging with the state and private investors. And actually the protest that happened was the last resort because when the communication failed, uh, the committee indicated that if no action will be taken, they will have to protest and block the railway. And when there was no response from the government or the private investor, that's what they did. Mm. They blocked the railway. So the resistance is both organized, and uh, also one that kind of takes more unconventional protest-based uh, options. And also, of course, <laughs> trying to make a life in the context where that is kind of against you is also a form of resistance, I guess. Uh, and that depends on one's theoretical background and how one can see these processes. But uh, continuing to live, have families and have dreams and projects for the future in the context that is extremely precarious is a form of resistance in itself. And I'm saying this, of course, without wanting to ro romanticize struggle mm -hmm. and hardship, mm -hmm. but yeah. I think it's important to acknowledge that the kind of, that, you know, humanity still prevails in these, in these uh, uh, contexts. And here, I think this kind of nicely links with your second question about the kind of projects and economic models that, people might have or if they have any uh, and I think yeah, the, to me the, the picture that was emerging was a bit more disheartening because as I already mentioned before in the community inclusion kind of direct inclusion in the form of employment 
in the mining sector is seen as the sole pathway to a better tomorrow and uh, mm-hmm. a better life. And, you know, even people who leave the resettlement site, I managed to find some of the families who had left and I managed to visit their new homes in very remote areas of the province. I know it took me three, four hours to get there on the motorbike. When I asked them what kind of aspirations they have for the future, they also said that they would like the investor to change their approach and provide more employment opportunities to, to the people mm. uh, who had been displaced by the mining. So that's what I reflect on in the book, particularly in the kind of the second half of the book, uh, trying to think critically about whether, well, what is resistance in this kind of context and can resistance that is kind of normatively challenging or thinking about actual meaningful alternatives to the current modes of development, can it actually exist? Or is kind of current understanding of development so powerful that even that, you know, people who are fundamentally made surplus by these processes, they still think that, you know, that model is the sole pathway to a better tomorrow. Yeah. Well, you make the point that capitalism itself creates precarity and that it's helpful for us not just to look at the global north because there's been a lot like people like guy standing you know they've written a lot about how you know we've got like these um uber drivers and delivery folks and you know many many people in the global north are becoming precarious but actually looking at the global south because in some ways that's that's the model for the future for everybody um and tell me if i'm wrong there in, in, in sort of rephrasing your, your words, but, you know, you live, are you from Amsterdam or? Uh, no, I'm actually, no, I'm from, originally from Lithuania. Oh, okay. And so, but okay, let's talk about Amsterdam though. So you, you, you work in Amsterdam and there are certainly more people who are precarious in Amsterdam than there were, you know, 40 years ago. I went to graduate school there 20 years ago at the University of Amsterdam and have gone back in recent years and I, I've noticed some changes in, in the way that people live and work. But um, life is a whole lot less precarious than it is in, I imagine, Mozambique. So I'm wondering what accounts for that? Is it just that the people in Amsterdam for a lot of historic reasons have been able to construct barriers against capitalism? What do you think is going on? <laughs> well, there's so much, of course, to this great question. But first, well, I mean, when we talk about Amsterdam or the Netherlands or England or, I mean, they were like, we have to talk about colonialism and coloniality and how these Mm -hmm. parts of the world are actually behind the expansion and intensification of empire and racial capitalism and exploitation of populations where that were fundamentally deemed as less human, and then they were subjected to slavery, exploitation, premature death. Um, And that of course has changed now, it has taken different forms, but we still see a fundamentally uneven global division of labor that is based around power vectors of race, class, gender, ethnicity, geographic location, body ability, and we ourselves in Amsterdam, uh, in, I mean, in England, in the Western world, we, 
we are kind of the lucky ones to reap the uh, the fundamentally uneven, well, I mean, the benefits of this fundamentally uneven, uh, socially differentiating economic and political model. Um, but then, of course, as you say, even, I mean, I don't want, I do not want in any sense to create this binary between the global north and the global south, because as you say yourself, even within cities like Amsterdam that historically have been the kind of the, the drivers of uh, colonialism in, in, in many ways. I mean, there's still a lot of precarity because of course there are fundamental class differences here as well and uh, different forms of racialism that are less, I guess, less explicit. So yeah, I think, I mean, if I think about, you know, like talking about these, the, the, the question that you're asking, I think the historical role of racial capitalism and the expansion and intensification of European empires and the forms of exploitation uh, that that engendered are fundamentally important. And we cannot talk about the, these inequalities that we're talking about without acknowledging that, or even, you know, without making it the central focus of our analysis. And uh, that's why- just, just so I can get this straight, if we're talking about, say, Amsterdam in the post, or Holland in the post-war period, the, the comfortable life that the, the, the Dutch were living was because of racial capitalism? Well, to a very large extent, because these societies like, you know, Great Britain uh, that used to be, you know, former empires, you know, they plundered and they stole a lot of wealth from other parts of the world. And I know it's a slightly like schematic and simplistic way of answering the question. but No, I, I mean, it's kind helpful. Of, it's yeah. kind of like a provocation, really, that we, we have to think about that. You know, we cannot naturalize, uh, you know, that Europe is... I mean, more developed because of some, I don't know, <laughs> natural reasons, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a, an effect and then like of specific historical processes of, of the violence of empires and what they did to the world. So, yeah, I would say that, I, I mean, it is, but then of course, political histories of, of states in, in, in Europe are also different. Uh, and that you know that's a, uh, that's another layer to the question that you're asking the way the state apparatus developed the way kind of the way stru class struggles took place in, in 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 the European context after the Second World War. Uh, I mean that's also of course a very complex question, and then it has you know it had to, with the social welfare state with the distribution of resources that also had a fundamental role in how you know the wealth was distributed here which of course is now changing. And since, well, d depending on the location from the 80s, 90s, with the kind of intense neoliberalization of, of, of yeah, this, the social and economic systems. So, so I'm not saying that we only have to talk about colonialism and coloniality, but I think it's an important, a very important kind of dynamic to acknowledge. And then we kind of need to think about other factors at play. Thank you.